Well, we're going to uh, go into some fairly what I would consider, um, you know, thick Bible teaching. Um, I don't mean difficult, I just mean it's going to be a lot. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, uh, communion, the Eucharist here. And, um, and then we'll be sent back out for this Thanksgiving week. So what I'd like for you to do is if you brought your Bible uh, or your Bible app or your iPad or Android or whatever, uh, go to Matthew chapter 25. I handed you a, um, a teaching note sheet. There's nothing to fill out on here. It's really just simply to give you some scriptures. Um, but uh, I can't fit Matthew chapter 25 on there, so uh, you'll need to have that accessed elsewhere. We'll put it on the screen as well, but I think you'll want to go back and look at it uh, whenever you feel like it, okay? So we begin then in Matthew 25, verse 14, not at the very beginning. We won't do the first 13 verses, but we're just going to start here in Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 14. Um, here we go. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off and at once traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. The one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been entrusted in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See what I have made? Two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful, trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master... I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you didn't scatter seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. And here's what's yours. The master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take that talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents now. For, for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we'll stop right there. So here we have this parable of Jesus. He's actually teaching about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What does it look like in the kingdom of God? How do you get into the kingdom of God? And so I have this little illustration up here with these uh, jars of water with blue liquid in them. Here's our five talent, uh, you know, person with the five talents. Here's our two talent. And then here is our little jar with our one talent person in it. And we'll get to those in a little bit. What I really want to do with this passage 
and actually with the entire chapter if we had time, but we don't, is talk about the difference between what Christians call the assurance of salvation and then the rewards that are due to people in heaven, or what I would rather call rewards for dreamers, rewards for dreamers. Assurance of salvation versus rewards for dreamers. And there's a lot of confusion. There's just an outright tension between good works and assurance of salvation. And most Christians, sometime during their faith journey, will have to wrestle through and probably not even get it resolved between, well, what do good works do? Are they added in to my salvation? Do they save me at all? So that's what I want to dig into a little bit this morning and end up talking about dreaming and generosity. So let's begin with a question. And I think it's there on your teaching note handout. Can a Christian lose their salvation? And then here are three or four solid Bible verses used to answer the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? And so we go right into it here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You'll want to get back to Matthew 25 at some point, but just flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's a letter from Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Real straight ahead, I think. It says this. You have been saved by grace, a free gift. You didn't work it. You didn't make it happen. You didn't earn it. Nobody can say, I helped save myself. Got it? Romans chapter 6, verse 9. Once again, this is the Apostle Paul. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I remember when I was 16 years old and I was really coming alive to the Christian faith, I had long arguments with my uh, Christian youth group leaders about whether or not Christians can sin. You know what I mean? Because of this kind of verse right here as well as the rest of the passage around it. And I'd say, I don't think Christians sin anymore. And they're like, well, that's not true. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, it says right there. You know, we're dead to sin. And so we go round and round about that sort of thing. And we're not going to solve this here right this moment. But nonetheless, what you can see is is that you have died to sin. All right? So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, a very famous verse. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we've all been earning our whole life is a wage that buys us sin. In other words, death, the result of sin. But because of the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that wage has been wiped out. That certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross. It's gone. Erased. Did we earn it? No. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. This is also from Paul. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appears, verse 5, he saved us not because of any, what? Works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
you can begin to see Titus written later on, probably a good 40, maybe even 50 years somewhat after Jesus. You can begin to see the baptism begins to come in as the church begins to form itself and get structures and baptism becomes a symbol of salvation. Still, even at that time, no works of righteousness are saving anybody. My Calvinist theological backbone, my training, is adamant. No, the Christian cannot lose their eternal security, their salvation. And this is summed up in the great Calvinist document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, by the way, is a part of the Constitution uh, of the Lakeland Community Church. And the Westminster Confession of Faith states that in chapter 17, it says that the Christians will persevere. In other words, they will last. You can't fall away. Our commitment to Jesus does not depend on our free will, chapter 17, the Westminster Confession says. But it depends upon God's decree. Christians, however, this is also what it says, Christians may at times be tempted and echo the corruption that remains in them through neglect, and Christians can and will fall into grievous sins it says, and can deprive themselves of God's grace, comfort, and instead harden their hearts and incur temporary judgments upon themselves. And then I just throw in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 that says, and some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But their salvation remains, even though they've hardened their heart and incurred all sorts of pains and trouble. Now, at this point, if we just stopped right here, we would all say like, well, thank you, Pastor, for reminding us that we are all assured of our salvation, that we are redeemed sinners. That's very nice. Thank you so much. Great. Let's all go home and watch the Chiefs. But that's not really uh, what we want to stop at. That's not where we want to stop. Because it's a little bit of a yawner if you've been around the church for a while or whatever, you're kind of like, I get it. I understand Westminster, whatever, and all the rest of that sort of thing. I understand assurance of salvation. Yeah, that's good. That's nice. And we think, and that comes in handy. Like, let's say you walked into a biker bar this afternoon, and you came up to the first six-foot-five-inch, 300-pound biker, and you called him a candy pants, and then they threw you out in the street with no teeth. (laughs) And you could at that point say, well, that's fine. I am not going to hell for insulting my fellow human being. I'm definitely going to the hospital. And you could rest assured that it's just fine, that you're not going to hell for calling somebody a name. So you got that going for you. So feel free to go do that if you want. You see, the regenerated sinner is forgiven for free and forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You know, of all the years that I've preached and discussed this whole thing, nobody ever gets excited about this sort of thing. A little bit. Nobody sheds a tear about this. Nobody gets all worked up whenever I've done this. And maybe it's because I just have never channeled my inner Billy Graham or something, but I just can't seem to get this going. But I'll tell you what I do get a rise out of, and it's this. There was once a father whose son took his inheritance and ran off to a foreign country. And he spent every last dime on wine, women, and debauchery. And then, after he'd spent everything, and he was starving, broke, and broke down, and slopping pigs, 
the pig slop began to look good to him, good enough to eat. And in one last brilliant flash of smarts, he said, you know what? (laughs) The workers back at my father's uh, estate, they're eating better than me. I'm just going to go home and tell my father that I've sinned terribly and I don't deserve to be his son anymore. And could he just give me a job? And I'll be doing better than what I'm doing right now. And so the whole way home, all the way home, dragging back home, he's rehearsing this. Father, I have sinned against you, and I no longer deserve to be your son. Would you just give me a job? Now, what the son doesn't know, the prodigal son doesn't know, is that this entire time, his father has been waiting for him on the front porch. Waiting for that son to come home. And there off in the far distance, he sees him coming. And he runs to meet him and embraces him and squeezes him. Meanwhile, the son's trying to get out his little speech that he's been rehearsing for miles and miles and miles. And he can't get it out because the father's yelling over him saying, prepare the fatted calf. We're going to have a huge barbecue party. For my son was lost, but now he's found. Now, somehow around at Lakeland, that seems to resonate with people. And I think it's this reason. Because everyone, we are certainly redeemed sinners. But more importantly, we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Your identity has been changed. You've returned home. You're a child of God. You've been reconciled to God. Now, we're talking about assurance of salvation versus rewards in heaven. So at this point, with this sort of child and parent sort of uh, illustration and metaphor going on, what we don't want to do is neglect the fact that any good parent disciplines their children. Yes? It's a sloppy parent who doesn't discipline their child. The art of parenting is learning to know how much to give your child and how much to discipline your child, right? Right? And you usually learn that art after they're grown and gone. But nonetheless, it's still a lifelong journey. Sometimes God the Father treats us really like children, and he is the parent. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. I think it's on your piece of paper, your study notes. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as what? Children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? There's that good rabbinic, that rabbi voice stating something with a question. What's a good parent? A parent who disciplines. That's right. Sometimes you have to have hard lessons in life in order to learn things. And God is not one who just uh, doesn't discipline people. This is why we all have to learn this lesson. That if you uh, loan $1,000 to your messed up cousin and he does not pay it back again, then maybe God is telling you as a good parent would tell their son or daughter, hey, 
Don't loan a thousand bucks to your messed up cousin. Instead, just give him the money. Because I'll tell you what, the next three months that you go around kicking the dog and griping and being angry and stewing over the fact of this, your kids don't think you're a very good Christian. Just give it away and free yourself. Or don't give it at all. I recommend just giving it away. You see, to be a parent is to give and to discipline, to make hard choices, to raise up children that have to make hard choices. Sometimes they have to live with the consequences and learn lessons, right? Years ago, one of my best friends over lunch was telling me he was really kind of upset. And he was telling me that his son, who I think was about 11 at the time, was on a baseball team, and his son had lost two baseball gloves. And if you've ever bought a baseball glove, like a legit baseball glove, that's a hunk of change. And his son had lost two gloves. He, he had one that his dad had bought, you know, my friend had bought for him, and then he lost that one, and then he lost another one. And so it's ready for the third glove. They're in season. And he's saying, I, I, I got to make him buy the next glove out of his own savings, birthday money and all that. And he knew it was making his son feel terrible, and his son was angry, and he felt terrible for making his son buy his own glove. But he was trying to teach him the lesson that things, you know, stuff has value. You just can't go around losing your baseball glove every time you feel like it. Good, strong parents let their kids pay the price so they'll grow up with wisdom instead of entitlement. Baseball gloves don't grow on trees or whatever other kind of parent thing you thought you would never say that you're now going to say. Salvation secure? Yes. Easy life? Not always. That's what God's saying. That's what parents do. Life's not supposed to necessarily be easy. You don't just get everything. Salvation secure? Yes. Easy life? Not always. The art of parenting is knowing when to give and when to discipline. The art of God is the same. Giving and discipline. Because God is our good parent, and we're sons and daughters of the Creator. Okay. Redeemed sinner. Good. Sons and daughters of the Most High. Good. Here's one that I've never taught. Rewards in heaven. Or more more precisely, what about different rewards in heaven? We don't like to talk about this in churches like Lakeland because it begins to sound like people can earn their salvation. But that's not what I'm talking about. Here's the illustration. Five talents in this big jar full of the blue liquid. Two talents in the smaller jar full of the blue liquid. The one talent empty small jar. The thing to notice about this illustration is not that it's blue or one's even bigger than the other, although those things are important. I'm not so sure about the blue part, but is that they're all full. Both of these are full to the very top. Eternal salvation is full. But capacity for joy in heaven, enter into the joy of your master, differs depending upon your capacity for joy. Full, But capacity for joy differs, it appears, amongst people according to their ability, if we pick apart Jesus' illustration. Apparently, there are different sizes. 
Three different servants, one given five talents and a large chunk of money to care for and invest. And then a second servant given two talents to care for and invest. And the last given one. The master returns. The five-talent servant has doubled it. The two-talent servant has doubled it. The one-talent servant had a bad picture of who the master is. The master was this greedy, mean person, according to this one-talent servant. Did the other two say that? No. The other two thought that the master was doing something awesome by giving them this privilege of increasing what had been given to them, according to their abilities. Not the last one. If you draw the equal sign over to God, this last one had a bad God, a mean God, a stingy God, not a generous God. I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here's what's yours. Not even their meager bank interest. Apparently, there are different sizes of reward. Has nothing to do with salvation. Oh, unless you're the last one. (laughs) Unless you have a bad picture of God. Some will have a greater joy than others, apparently. But they'll all be full. There's just that one stingy picture of God that seems to be empty and never really quite makes it because they had the wrong God in the first place. So, if you're like judgmental and angry, if you're a fundamentalist, if you believe more in being right than being loving, apparently, This makes you an empty person. If you have a bad picture of God, and you think God is mean, then maybe you never really come to grace. Or just to put it in the good old-fashioned Calvinist terms, you're never Christian in the first place. You're just a religious person. A Pharisee. So what kind of God do you have? Do you have a God who gives? Do you have a God who lavishes? Do you have a God who invests in you? Do you have a God who disciplines you? Is God your parent? Do you have a God that, that uh, thinks generously toward you? Or do you have a black and white legalistic fundamentalist sort of God? You see, brothers and sisters, what Jesus loves is when All of his followers feel so secure and safe, so invested in, not entitled, but simply that God is taking care of them, that they've been given so much, no matter what size of life you have, whether you're poor or whether you're rich or whatever abilities you have or or education or anything else like that, whatever you've been given, it's full. And this allows you to become a person who dreams You dream of heaven and you dream of other people. You dream of loving other people. You have a large capacity, no matter whatever size jar you've been given, to be full. Not just redeemed sinners, not just children, sons, and daughters, although all that's good, but mature Christians are dreamers. 
Maturity is measured in how big and full your dream is, folks. This is why I'm talking about generosity today. (laughs) We dream of others having enough for Christmas. We dream of healthy homes and safe children and children who can go to school and have plenty of food so their brain works right. Children who can go to sleep at night that are safe. A few weeks ago, I was talking to uh, Pastor Marvin Daniels, Executive Director of the Hope Center, and he came here and preached here this fall. And I keep stewing over the whole thing where he said, our students, because they have the Hope Academy down there, it's a charter school, right? Down there in the inner city. And he says, our kindergarten, kindergartners come in and are already way behind in their ability to read. And I'm like, well, okay, uh, they're behind? I thought kindergartners don't really come in with the ability to read. Then you realize out in the suburbs, most kids going to kindergarten already knowing how to read. Right? Okay. He says, but down in the inner city, they're way behind because they don't even know what the letters are supposed to sound like because they've never heard the words and the letters pronounced the way they're written in the book. You get it? They haven't heard the way the words are supposed to sound. But if you're white and live out in the suburbs, you're miles ahead. Because when it says cat, it sounds like cat. Or spaghetti or whatever the other word is. Dreamers do something about that. Dreamers have a large capacity to dream for other people, to dream for the world. Dreamers are not scared. They don't live in a scarcity mentality. They don't think God is mean and belligerent and holding out on them. They just have a capacity of their own life, the one life you've been given, your full measure of faith. And you just dream fully instead of stingy and a lack of generosity. Dreaming Christians aren't afraid of anyone. They aren't afraid of bloggers. They aren't afraid of politicians. They aren't afraid of liberals and conservatives. They're not afraid of Wall Street or protesters. They're not afraid of anyone. Because they are with Jesus. They're at peace. They know who they belong to. They know they're a child, a son or daughter of the Most High. No reason to fear. Nothing to be scared of. Like the song we sing, the flowers in the field, the lilies of the field, dressed prettier than any girl on her wedding day. And that's very pretty. And they don't worry about what they'll wear. And the birds of the air, they don't worry about what they'll eat because their father feeds them. What do you have to be scared of, folk? We live in a perfectly safe world. What you have been given is this one jar in life. What, what will you do with it? That's the challenge, to dream for other people. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven on earth. That's what you're supposed to do with your one life and be free. Reading on there, Matthew chapter 25, I'm sure you kept your thumb right there. Reopen the app. 
Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Matthew 25, 34. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it when we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are the members of my family, you did it to me. That's the dream. Not sitting around asking questions like, well, they're probably in prison because they did something bad, so they don't deserve to be visited. And they don't have any food because they don't know how to manage money. And they drink too much anyway. That's our dream, everyone. The vision that we have as a church the vision that all Christians ought to have with perfect clarity, perfect vision, is a dream that says, don't be scared. Be a child of God. Be a dreamer. If you walk through your day smiling at every child you see, having a wishful thought about every person that you run into. You're living a dream. The dream of God. If you walk through your day judgmental and cranky and angry, I don't think that's what really is going to get us there. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, everyone, in some sense, this meal, this symbol, this bread and this cup that we're about to partake in, When you tear off the piece of bread and you dip in the chalice, you're saying, like, I'm in. I'm in on the dream. I'm reminded one more time for one more week, I know what I'm supposed to do this week. I know who I am. I know who I belong to. And I know what my charge is. My charge is to say, I belong to the man who first held up the loaf of bread and the chalice and said, eat and drink. That's the dream. See, everyone, my dream on this, my picture of this same thing, here's my dream. My dream is that someday your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be standing at the head of a table, a very, very, very long table with all of your brothers and sisters over time. And he will be holding a chalice And he'll be say like, everybody grab their glass. Because the feast is about to start for all eternity. 
Your job and my job is to recognize as many faces around that table as possible. Don't be a stranger in heaven. Got it? Would you stand with me, please? And let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray. And I mean pray, not just recite. Let's go slow. Pray it. And let's say it all out loud together. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. So therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink is right now. Come forward and tear off a piece of the bread. You can dip in the chalice and say, I'm all in. And then go back to your seat and keep in a prayerful attitude. Come whenever you're ready. And now, Father, you have fed us with spiritual food. You are about to send us out into a very real world of real food and real struggles and real joys. May we carry with us then, Lord, this hope, this dream, and give us peace, not fear. May we trust you with everything we have as we go forward, especially into this week of Thanksgiving and on towards Christmas, the greatest gift of all. We all said, Amen. So the Lord be with you and keep you this week and send you out ferociously, yeah? Amen. Go in peace.